Hi, this is Jesslyn Etchell, and I'm chatting with some of my favorite women in a series called Wildish Wise Women, Conversations with Everyday Goddesses. It's my passion to connect women and remind us that supporting one another is our greatest strength. These discussions are an extension of the in-person women's circles I lead in the Bay Area, and we'll explore a variety of topics. Thanks for joining us. I'm here talking with Allison Solomon today. She is a licensed clinical social worker who now spends her time writing and traveling. Sounds good to me. Um, she worked for many years in different mental health and social services agencies in different roles, including clinical director and supervisor of master's level therapists, including myself. She's been published in different capacities in academic textbooks, anthologies, professional journals, and newspapers, but she is getting ready to release her debut novel that will be published by Sapphire Books coming out April 15, 2016. Allison grew up in England, has lived in Israel and Mexico, and now makes her home in Florida. She's going to talk to us today about living your bliss, which apparently she has figured out. Welcome, Allison. Thank you. Thank you, Jesslyn. I'm really happy to be here. Oh, good. Well, before we launch into the topic, I'm happy you're here too. Let's just take a moment to settle into this connection together and anyone else listening can just join us by taking a couple deep breaths. So we'll just take an inhale through the nose and exhale out the mouth. We'll just take a couple more like that. And may each woman who needs the wisdom of this call find her way here. May we speak from the heart and create a wave of peace that radiates out on a global level. And may each woman remember her sacred nature and feel the value of her presence in this world. Hmm. Allison, what's your favorite thing about being a woman? Ah, you didn't tell me you were going to ask me that. <laughs> I love the introduction that you just did. I felt tingly when you did it. And Aww. I think that that's what I love about being a woman is I just felt this connection to all the women that were going to be listening to this. And I think that women do have a very sacred, special bond. Yep, I love it. That's perfect. And I love when I get tingly, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot to be felt as a woman. So congratulations on your book. I'm so excited. Thank you. So am I. <laughs> so I want to know what made you want to write a book and what made you want to write this book? So tell me just a little bit about the process. Okay. Well, it's actually been a really long process because the first book I ever wrote was probably 20 years ago. And it was a novel and it was set in Israel and um, I actually, I completed it and I even got myself an agent and she shopped the book around and we almost had a publisher. The publisher sat on it for a long time and then just asked me if it was autobiography. And I said, no, obviously there's a little bit of me in there, but it's not about autobiography. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, but we've decided not to publish novels anymore. It was a feminist press called Seal Press. Oh. Um, and after that, I did not find, and after that, my agent said she decided she was dropping out of agenting because it was just when publishing was starting to get really hard if you weren't already famous, well-known, had a big platform, all of that. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of put that one aside. 
And then years later, when we were living in Mexico, I started a different novel. Um, and it was about a therapist and her <laughs> client. Um, and it was sort of looking at whether, you know, the kinds of influence that a therapist can have over her client and whether it can be too much or not. Um, and how we know the truth and how clients know their truth. Um, and so I completed that and I had a professional editor look at it and they said, um, it's, you're obviously a really good writer, but it needs a lot of work on the plot. And so um, at the time we were getting ready to move back to the States. And so I put that aside too. <laughs> and then uh, last year I connected with a woman who's very involved with lesbian publishing organization. And she encouraged me to come to a conference. And so I, I said, oh, sure, that sounds like a lot of fun. And But when I looked, I saw that everybody, oh, meanwhile, I should say, I had started working on my memoir. And so I had written quite extensively for my memoir, but then I saw that everyone who was coming to this conference pretty much was doing fiction. So I thought, oh, let me pick up that book that I wrote about the therapist and see if I can rework it as a lesbian novel. Mm -hmm. So I did that. I completed it last summer and I um, submitted it for publication and actually, so the feedback that I got was that it was way too intense and way too heavy and that lesbians didn't want to read that kind of stuff. Um, but the one publisher who called me and had a long chat with me said, I really like your writing and I hope you'll think of us for the next thing you write. And I think that once you've got a following, we may be able to publish this book, but I don't want it to be your first book because it will put some people off. It's about incest. And so I get that a lot of women don't want to read about incest. Um, but after the conference, I don't know what happened. I just felt complete. I came home and I just had this story kind of pouring out of me. And whereas I had slaved over these other novels for months and years, this book just came out of nowhere. And I just started writing. And within seven weeks, the whole thing was complete. It's totally different from anything else I've written. It's suspense. It's easy to read. It's um, actually fairly easy to write because it's not so intense. Um, so that's kind of what happened. That's amazing. I had no idea that you had written all those books and what a cool story. And I love how, um, cause I know that some people feel like their creative process is kind of begrudging and other folks just feel like it's a flow. I love that you got to experience both of those, those things. So, yes. and so it's a suspense. What else is it about? Um, so it is, it does have a social worker in it and oh, it hooray. <laughs> the themes that I, you know, obviously, I mean, they say you should write what you know. Um, and so actually originally on this one, I had originally thought that what I wanted to do was a love story for a woman who has dementia, a little bit like um, Trip to Bountiful or um, Fried Green Tomatoes, where it's someone kind of trying to reconnect with a lost love. Mm -hmm. But this book is nothing about that. But for some reason, that was what in my mind was in my mind. And what I realized was I wanted to have a narrator who you don't really know whether you can trust them, um, because in this case, she has memory problems. And I was sort of inspired by, I don't know if you've read either Gone Girl or Girl on the Train. Do you know either of those? I know novels? of them, but I haven't read them, no. They're both novels where they're um, set in the first person, but... As you read them, you start to say, well, I don't know if I can trust this narrator. In the case of Gone Girl, um, the, the narrator is married and, a, you know, a, a suspect in the disappearance of his wife. Mm -hmm. And you think that, oh, well, you know, well, I'm sure I can trust what he's saying. And then all of a sudden you find out, oh, he's having an affair. 
Um, in the case of Girl on the Train, the narrator is someone who drinks too much. And so she doesn't really remember what happens to her half the time because she's drunk. And so I thought this is, I found it really, really interesting. And I suppose as a therapist, you know, we, on the one hand, you always take what your client tells you at face value. But you also know that your client is telling it from their perspective and, and you learn to listen with this other ear and think, hmm, I suspect that their family members or their colleagues or whoever are not experiencing them the same way the client experiences themselves. Yeah. And so I think this is what sort of appealed to me, that you have a narrator who is telling it the way she sees it, but you as a reader are not quite sure if she's, you know, telling you the whole truth kind of thing. So... Um, that's so it's focused on a woman who is actually accused of kidnapping two girls who are in foster care. And there are three narrators in the novel. And so one of them is the woman who's accused of kidnapping the girls. One of them is her partner, Barker, who um, is a social worker for the two girls and is also very concerned that when the protagonist uh, may have dementia. Um, and then the third narrator is one of the girls who's been kidnapped. And so it alternates chapters, and you read from each of their points of view until you find out what happened. Wow, that sounds great. And the social worker is the hero, right? I'm not giving <laughs> anything away, but we know what we, uh, we know social workers. Yeah, we know what we signed up for. Okay. <laughs> um, so then I guess it's safe to say that you have some other stuff in the works, since this just poured out of you and you already have a full, complete book and a memoir started. I mean... I, I suspect this won't be the last that we'll hear of you as a published author. <laughs> uh, definitely not, because I'm already about three quarters of the way through of my second novel, which is also, um, once I started writing this suspense thing, I thought, you know, this, this kind of appeals to me because there are things about my writing. For example, I'm not a very visual person, and I'm, so I'm not good at writing sort of flowery descriptions. In fact, um, when people in my writer's group People will say, well, at least tell us what she was wearing. At least tell us what kind of house it looked like because <laughs> I don't notice those things and so I forget that other people, that's they do. Uh -huh. But anyway, with suspense, it's so much more about the story and what happened next. And so that really actually works for me in a way that um, I, I still would like to keep going with the memoir, but I don't know if that I'll ever do anything with that incest book. Yeah, well, I told you I'll read anybody's memoir. I think that's a great format and I really love reading them. So I want to read them all, but I, I'm particularly fond of memoirs. So I hope that one gets completed. Well, I would love to just shift gears and there'll be links and stuff for everyone to be able to click and find you and follow you and make sure to get your book. But I just want to um, shift into this idea of living your bliss. So that's kind of how we coined this, this talk. And I'm wondering what that means to you. Um, you know, I'm 55 years old and I stopped working last year. So um, even though I love being a social worker and the, the whole profession is near and dear to me, I do feel that I am living my bliss now because I'm doing exactly what I want to do. I, I love where I live and I love, I have a great relationship and most importantly, I love how I spend my time. Um, so to me, that's what living your bliss is. Yeah, that piece about the time seems very uh, relevant for, for, for all of us, but for people especially who maybe don't think they're spending their time in a way that nourishes them um, in the best way. So I guess 
my first thing is, how did you find out that's how you wanted to spend your time? Because I'm guessing there are people out there that, that say, I, don't, I know I don't like what I'm doing, but I have no idea um, what I want to be doing. Is there some way to figure that out? Or what's the way you figured it out, I suppose? Well, actually, it's a very interesting question because um, it, when we moved, we moved to Florida a couple of years ago and I really wasn't sure what I was going to be doing. And so I did what I thought was the easy thing. I started a private practice and I did it for a few months and I thought, yeah, I, there's a reason why I never stayed in private practice because for me personally, I find it a little isolating. You sit in an office by yourself, you know, with your clients, but I, I like to be in much more of a social environment. So um, I realized I didn't want to do that. So then I applied for some jobs and the jobs that I got were all things I'd kind of done already. And I felt like there's no challenge to any of this. I can do social work, but this is not, you know, when I first started the profession, everything I was doing, every job I took, I was passionate about it. I loved it. I was, I cared about my clients. I cared about the population I was working with. And this time around, even though obviously I cared, it wasn't to that same level of passion that I'm used to having. So I must say that I'm always someone who's very, being very cognizant of wanting to enjoy her work. Um, so I, so it was when I realized that it wasn't happening here the way I wanted it to, I thought, well, maybe I don't have to work. And my partner and I sat down and, and looked at our finances and realized that actually we really didn't need that income. That um, That's another whole piece of how you get to live your bliss, obviously, that we are at a point where... Um, where I don't need to work. But what I will say, if people are immediately thinking like, well, okay, so she's a wealthy middle-class woman that doesn't need to work. You know, I was a social worker and my partner managed um, the food locker at the Sacramento Food Bank. So, and, and we have no private income or inheritances or anything like that. Um, so then I so stopped working last year and I didn't really know what I was going to do. And a friend of mine who had retired a few years ago said to me, it doesn't matter that you don't know what to do. Just do whatever you feel like. And I bet you within a year or so, you'll, something will have come to you and you'll realize this is what I want to do. And I thought, well, I hope she's right. Cause I'm not someone who's very good at trusting that kind of process, but I didn't have much choice cause I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, <laughs> So I just, you know, I did. I played a bit of tennis and, you know, started volunteering at the local library. And, and then this writing thing came up and, and then it, everything sort of fell into place. Wow, that's awesome. <laughs> and I love that you just went with it, even though you weren't sure about trusting. Yes. Yeah, that <laughs> was a smart friend. <laughs> well, and I, I think... You know, I think that throughout my life, there have been times when people say, oh, you have to trust the process or things will work out the way they're meant to. And I definitely have not always believed that, you know, especially I think when you see people who are like famous singers or, you know, they've become very famous and they say, just keep plugging away and you'll get here, too. And I think but obviously there's tons of very good singers who are never going to make it to, you know, the Grammys. So I don't entirely buy that they're gonna, people are going to achieve exactly what they want. But I do believe that we can find our bliss. We can achieve something that is very close to what we want. Yeah, that makes me think of the question. I mean, is living your bliss, does it, living your bliss, does it have to go with success? Because technically, if you're, if you're still singing or you're writing or you're doing whatever, but you're not making it, so to speak, um, you still may be very happy. Right. And I think that's an important point, because actually, you know, in the publishing 
field. It's very, very competitive. And to get a novel published by, you know, a well-known publisher is so incredibly difficult if you don't have the contacts and you don't, you're not already a professional writer and so on. And so I chose to go with a smaller publisher. And part of me was sort of thinking, oh, but, you know, I don't know that they have the best reputation. And, and my partner said to me, but what do you really want? Do you want to see your book in print or do you want to spend the next two years trying to find an agent, a publisher who's then going to make you rewrite it? And I thought, she's right. I just want to see the book come out and I think it's good enough to be read. Yeah, that's great. And it's cool to be picked up by any publisher these days because it seems like in book writing specifically, there's a lot of emphasis on self-publishing and people are going that route, um, which I'm sure has its own pros and cons, but it certainly probably doesn't feel quite as you know, like you're embraced by this community. Right. And also it's, you have to learn so much with self-publishing, you know, it's a whole other profession. And I thought, well, I personally don't want to spend that much time trying to do all the technical parts of it. Even though at this point, I'm now starting to have to do some sort of PR. And so just this morning, I sat down to learn how to use uh, a mail server that, you know, sends out bulk emails. Oh, yeah. So you can send out a newsletter or something. Right, right. right. So you you still have to start doing some of that stuff. So I'm discovering that even when you live your bliss, there are still a few (laughs) little things you have to do that you'd rather not. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me about some of those challenges besides uh, learning a bit of (laughs) self-promotion. I think probably the most important one is believing in yourself. And I always think of myself as being extremely confident and extremely, um, you know, I, I think of myself as someone who does believe in myself, but then even I catch myself doubting and questioning. And so just knowing that things really are going to work out the way you want them to, or that they'll work out the way they should, you know. Ah, yeah, because it's not always necessarily the way we want it or the timing that we want it in and all of that. We don't get to pick the details. (laughs) Right. Well, and that was the other thing I was going to say about sort of in terms of challenges or obstacles to living your bliss. If you had asked me 20 years ago what living my bliss would be, I would have told you that it was having a baby and that and my partner and I tried very hard um, in various ways to build a family, both in terms of trying to get pregnant, in terms of foster care, in terms of adoption. And ultimately, none of that worked out. And now I look back and I say, "Okay, so I didn't get to do that, but I get to do this instead. And Like I say, I think your bliss changes because that was what was important to me 20 years ago. And I used to think, well, how will I get over this? How will I learn to live with, you know, what I feel is the saddest thing that happened in my life? But now I look at it and say, but if I had had a child, I wouldn't be doing this. And maybe I would be stuck doing one of those social work jobs that I really wasn't crazy about. Yeah, just for the stability, perhaps. Right. Yeah. Well, I think that's a it's a good reminder that things change and, and our our goals and what we want can change and shift and that's all good. My next thought that what I'm what what's just going through my mind because women are listening to this is do you think that there are different obstacles that women are gonna run into in terms of figuring out what their bliss is and actually living it that maybe men won't be faced with? 
Well, I do think that whole issue of confidence, uh, you know, um, they say, you know, when you read any of the research about men and women, you know, men will ask for higher salaries than women will. Mm -hmm. Men will assume that they're entitled to all kinds of things that women won't. When you read about women who have PhDs, a lot of them say, I thought I was a fraud. I thought people are just going to find me out. Like even when they're really successful, they don't believe in themselves. And I think men are much better at saying, hey, I'm really good at this. And, you know, even if they're not. <laughs> well, yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. not always, but I mean, we're in the mid middle of an election cycle here. And uh, just look at the personalities there, you know. Ooh, yeah, that's a whole other <laughs> podcast. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that's true. That's come up time and again when I've been recording these just about um, believing in yourself and not letting any of that get in the way. And the other piece I was going to say is, coming back to what I was saying earlier, I do believe that finances are really important if you want to live your bliss. And I have been shocked at how many women really don't take charge of their finances, um, whether they're single or whether they're partnered or they're married. A lot of women sort of have that attitude of I don't really understand money or I can't make it work for me or they blow through money or, you know, and, and I think that it's terribly important to think about if I want to achieve something, how much money do I need and how will I go about it? And for me, the bottom line has always been about saving as much money as possible you know, I came to this country when I was um, 30. And so I started working, I guess, when I was 33. And from the moment I started working, I always put, you know, probably at least 20% of my salary into savings. And that's where I am where I am, to, you know, I am today. And so when it came time to buy a house, I didn't take the big mortgage for the big house. I took the small mortgage for the small house. And I think that women just don't plan for their financial selves enough. Yeah, that's a huge reminder. And, and what an empowering thing, too, to just be able to say, okay, I'm going to figure this out. Because I felt that way before, too. Like, I don't understand, like, investments, and that stuff doesn't make sense to me because it's numbers and it's math and my brain shuts down. But to really, it's an important thing to take it seriously and to, I mean, not even just uh, making investments, just but just sheer saving. <laughs> Right, right. How you spend. And, and there's also, I mean, when you talk about women in society, you know, I, I, one of my pet peeves is this constant focus on women and shopping. Like this is what, this is how we get, this is how we are happy. Or this is how we should bliss. Now I know, I know I'm probably to the extreme with this in that I really don't like shopping. I don't like buying clothes. I don't like buying things in general. Yeah. And I think that probably also not having been brought up in the States, I never grew up with such a consumerist point of view. Um, but I also think that women are almost made to feel like there's something wrong with them if they don't like spending money. Well, we certainly see all of that in the media about how we should have the latest and greatest and all the new fashions and, um, yeah, I, I think that's true and a good, a good just, I don't know, reflection. Because I didn't grow up with a lot of shopping either. My mom doesn't like it. When we go shopping, she's like, what store are we going to and what do we need to get? In and out. Right. <laughs> Let's do this. Right. We're not going to spend all day right. at the mall. So I, I can relate to that. Um, and also, actually, on an environmental point of view, I am really big into thrift store shopping because there is so much stuff. There's so many clothes that are already out there that we don't need to always be buying new. 
Yeah, that's that's great. And and I'm thinking as you're talking here that this doesn't mean that you didn't get to do a lot of things because you and your partner have traveled a ton. You guys have done lots of things, but you learned how to do it in a way that was sustainable for your, you know, the way that you guys wanted to live your life. So actually what I forgot to tell you when you were asking me about my writing is that we also wrote a book called Travel More Pay Less when yes. we were I remember. Yeah. <laughs> Travel more, pay less. Okay, and it's available um, electronically, it's, right? Well, at this point, it's not even available electronically, unfortunately. Um, but still, you know, it was that whole idea of you can go places and you don't have to spend a lot of money. That There are so many ways to travel affordably. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and some of the places that you can stay that are not super fancy are still very, very nice and affordable. And depending on where you go, well, you know, I like to travel in developing countries. And I think you're right. on the same page. That you, I mean, you get a lot more for your money. <laughs> oh, definitely. definitely. Yeah. So if someone out there, I mean, I think we've got kind of some, some tips to start us off. If someone out there is just like, I don't like the way I'm spending my time. What would be the first step for them? Or they just want to move towards living their bliss. I'm hearing you say, kind of just do what you like and, and see what comes up and, and really pay attention to the way you're spending and what you want and what your goal is going to be like. But is there any other tips that you would give for someone that is just listening going, oh, of course, she's got I, the perfect I, life. <laughs> I think part of it is that we often put our own obstacles in the way when we say, well, I can't do this because X or I can't do this uh -huh. because Y. And I think instead we have to think, well, how could I do this? Because I know certainly as a therapist, you know, you'd, a lot of times you'd work with people who would say, yes, but, you know, and yes, but, and there was always the reasons why they couldn't do things. And I, you know, for example, writing, I'm very blessed and very lucky that right now I've got plenty of time to do it. But what I see is that the people who are passionate about it get up an hour earlier and do it in that hour before they get up. You know, I think that, People who, when you realize that you want to do something, you figure out how can I do it rather than look at all the things I can't do. Or if you want to do something, you know, if you have physical limitations and you can't be a tennis player, but then how can you do something that matches your physical limitations? I think it's that constantly trying to figure out what can I do rather than focusing on all the things that are obstacles. Yeah, sounds like you have to check your butts. Yes, but, <laughs> and, and you're right, as a therapist, we do hear that, because we make a lot of recommendations. Well, what if you did this? Oh, but I couldn't do that, or, you know, so, yeah, that's, that's, right. a, that's a good one, for sure. And I have to say, I must have been channeling your creativity or something going on. I woke up at 4 a.m. this morning and just got out of bed and started writing, and I never do that. <laughs> I, like, I had a topic and a title, and everything just came flowing out so quickly, and then I went back to sleep. <laughs> Mm -hmm. <laughs> because I thought I hardly get this like burst of inspiration. This doesn't happen to me. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to let it go to waste. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, if you haven't read yet, Elizabeth Gilbert's book called big magic, I would highly recommend it. It's all about creativity and um, how we just have to make time for it. And we just have to put stuff out into the world. And, and she talks a lot about just making that time. Like even if you still have to work, then you just write, when you have the time right, or anything, you know, and she, she also addresses the, the discrepancy between men and women and their creativity. And, um, I just love everything she writes, but it's especially a good one when we're talking about getting out there and doing what you want in life. I definitely have to look out for that because, um, I loved her second novel and I'm blanking, um, signature of all things. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Oh, that was so wonderfully written. Wasn't it? Yes. 
So, well, Allison, is there anything else that you would like to share about this idea of living your bliss and, and how you're doing it, um, writing books and traveling? I, I think only that whole sense of, of prioritizing, you know, of, um, well, I guess if, the two things that I would say is prioritizing, figuring out what you really want and what's really important. Um, and the, the other thing I was going to say is, is seeking experiences rather than things. Um, because I know that some people will say that what makes them happy is having things. And maybe this is just my own bias, but I don't get it. I don't get how having things makes you happy, uh -huh. but I do get how having experiences and relationships and all of those things make you happy. Yeah, well, that seems fair. So if you're someone out there who feel like things make you happy, maybe just sub out some experiences here and there and see, um, see what happens. I'm a fan. I'm a fan of giving experiences for gifts over things, especially if I get to enjoy them too. <laughs> I mean, I guess the thing is, if it's things that bring you experiences, I mean, for example, I'm, I'm not into uh, jet skiing, but I could imagine that the experience of jet skiing is fantastic. So obviously buying jet skis because you love that experience, that's fine. Um, but just you know, buying things for the sake of things. And the other thing I would go back to is that whole experiences thing. I, I said to you before, sometimes I think people look at me and think, well, you know, she gets to do that because she's middle class and she's got money. But when I was working with low income women, one of the things that I saw was how no one had taught them how to prioritize what was important and what wasn't. So they would spend money, they would save all their money and then take like their three-year-old to Disney World. And it was like, your three-year-old would rather just be in the local park than spending $100 on Disney World. So I guess not accepting the status quo, the social status quo, which says Disney World is the best thing ever and thinking, uh -huh. yeah, but actually children love running around a park just as much. Yeah. So you're very good at not keeping up with the Joneses. That doesn't matter to you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's great. I think that's a good lesson for people and, and folks that are listening. If that's been, been a thing for you, just maybe to check it a little bit or just to, to question why. Are you doing it because it's really what you like or what? But you really need to be happier because someone told you that's what it was. And, and probably that's true for everything we grow up with, you know, yeah. questioning our family's values, questioning our faith values and checking in with, do they still suit me? If they still work for me, then that's fantastic. But if they don't, having the courage and integrity to stand up and say, actually, I can live differently than other people in my family or in my faith or in my community. Yeah. Okay. So that, that sounds like a great take home right there. Living your bliss is just looking at all the things in, in life and what it is that you really want and how you really get there and how much money you're going to need to do it. And if it's going to require you stepping back from some of the things that you, you believed to be true before and, and shifting, shifting your perspective. Yeah. And, and knowing that every experience you have is valuable that, you know, you never quite know what's going to feature in the bigger scale of things when you're busy plowing away. And I'm sure that's equally true for women who are bogged down with, you know, small children and, and barely having time to do anything except look after them. But who knows what those experiences will give them when the kids are grown up and they get to do other stuff that they want to do. Yeah, that's great. Well, I just have a couple questions that are unrelated. And yes, I did not prepare you for them. Um, <laughs> what's one book that changed your life, Allison? 
It would definitely have to be uh, a book on feminism, and I can't honestly remember which the first one was that I read. Probably I'll go with Our Bodies Ourselves. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I'll write that down, and I'll have I'll have a link to it so people can check it out if they haven't heard of it before. Well, um, and I think it's so different. In, when I discovered it, and this was a long time ago when I was a student living in Israel, I had never, ever seen a book that was about a woman's body, and I read stuff that I just didn't even know about. And, of course, nowadays there are so many books like that, it wouldn't have that same impact, but it did on me at that time. Yeah, and you'd be surprised how many women are still disconnected from their bodies, even with all the things that we have access to. So I think that's an important place to start in, in your inquiry, if you haven't already. What's one of your favorite places you've ever traveled? Now, that's really a tough one, because <laughs> so many places, and I loved so many of them. And Asia was fascinating, and Guatemala was fascinating, and of course I love Europe, I, I do. And, and also there are so many fantastic places, um, you know, right here in the States. So anywhere that's a fantastic, beautiful, quiet, peaceful nature, I'm happy. Okay, so you can see that living her bliss includes traveling. <laughs> and you can't pick a favorite spot, you know that you love to travel. <laughs> and then do you have a favorite quote? Oh, I would say it's the Helen Keller quote that whether or not I'm going to come up with the accurate version of it or not, but it has to do with the fact that um, when one door closes, a window opens. So that whole idea of when, you know, something bad happens to you, somewhere else a window opens. That's perfect. I love it. And it sounds like that very much plays into your story. Yes, well, I'm so excited to hear your book or see it, read it, all of it. We didn't get to say the name of it, so tell us what the name <laughs> of it is. <laughs> it's, uh, the title of the book is Along Came the Rain. Okay. And if, depending on when this podcast actually gets broadcast, the um, opening chapter is on my website, which is Allison with one L, rsolomon.com. Um, and people can also connect with me on Facebook, also AllisonRSolomon.com. Awesome. I mean, well, go give yeah. her a like, give her some increase on her platform. <laughs> <laughs> and I found it for you. It says, when one door of happiness closes, another opens. But often we look so long at the closed door that we do not see the one that has been opened for us. Thank you. That's it. You're welcome. And thank you, Allison. I'm so excited to have talked with you today and just so excited for you on your journey to publishing books and being being a famous author. I'm just going to put it out there. <laughs> well, <laughs> just thank, say you it. <laughs> thank you very much. And um, I'm excited to hear your other podcasts that you're doing. Yeah, well, Allison was my favorite and best uh, supervisor I ever had. You're very good at what you do, whatever it is. So I know if you are a good supervisor, I'm sure you'll be an even more fantastic author. So thanks for your time, Allison. Thank you, Jessalyn. <laughs>